Blog Talk Radio. You can see our support page on truthbetoldradio.com. Also, just see our website at truthbetoldradio.com. Check it out. And thanks for listening. And I'm going to get started with the lesson. The lesson for today is the reasons to reign single, part one. And here we go. Let's see. Oh, don't see it. Wonderful. Let's see. Sorry. Okay, here it go. Uh, nope, that's the wrong one. So it looks like I might have the wrong one up. Um, I will play a song for you for now. Mm-hmm. 
what I'm writing this to you I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning Cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning And this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just a holy trinity Ruling from infinity Glory blaze tremendously Loving one another endlessly Billions, billions years ago Outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know But Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the By far. Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are. There's none like you in existence. You are God and you need no assistance. Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance that existed between God and man. According to your sovereign plan, we changed many times in one lifespan. I changed even since this song began. Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us. All that you do will certainly last. You are the rock that we can trust. Shows us back in eternity past. As long ago as that was. As long ago as that was. Have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, About my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still, you pursue relentlessly. At times, I wonder how this can be. Surely, it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So, even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever, this grace, it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change.
And now, Reasons for Being Single, Part 1. Thanks for listening here on Trippy Toll Radio. See us, check us out, us for the, see the lighthouse, shining the light on God's uh, truth, His Word. Now, here's the lesson. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John that unpacks 15 Greek words in Scripture that explain a stunning paradox, how a God of perfect justice can show mercy to sinners who deserve only punishment. Request your free booklet titled 15 Words of Hope by writing to hope at gty.org. That's hope at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through June 2023. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. Now this morning, turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are, for our guests, happy to say that uh, you're catching us in the midst of a most exciting and interesting study. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is a very practical book which deals with problems among Christians, problems in the church of Christ. Chapter 7 deals with problems surrounding the issue of marriage. This morning, as we come to verses 25 to 40, we come to a very interesting section that I've entitled, Reasons for Remaining Single. Now, that is an unusual title, and it's a very unusual topic, a very unusual section of Scripture. If you came this morning as a visitor expecting to hear some great theological treatise, or maybe you came kind of waiting to hear about how you become a Christian, well, we'll be happy to tell you that personally afterwards. But this morning, we're going to approach the text that is before us, and a very, very unusual text it is, dealing with reasons for remaining single. Now, we're not uh, at Grace Community Church convinced that marriage is bad. I'm married, and most all of the people in this church are either married or anxious about it. (laughs) We're not against marriage, but the Bible is is very balanced 
in the area of marriage, and it recognizes that for some people, singleness is better than marriage because God has gifted them to be single. And the church must maintain a balance in understanding this. Even though Peter calls marriage the grace of life, and even though Paul exalts marriage as the picture of Christ's relation to the church, and Paul states even that marriage is the norm, even though our Lord Jesus Christ acknowledged the strength of the marriage bond in Matthew 19, it is still true that for some people, singleness is best. The norm of marriage that is presented throughout Scripture is not to make us think that anybody single is abnormal. It isn't so. One Bible teacher said, if you are single, you are incomplete. Is that true? I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true that single people are losers, single people are misfits, single people are incomplete, abnormal. And yet I think that our society, at least our Christian society, tends to think that. As soon as our daughters get to the age of 19 or 20, we begin to panic if they don't have a boyfriend. As soon as our sons get to around 20 to 25, we really get panicky. And if they get over 25 and haven't found a girl, we begin to wonder about whether or not they have some secret problem that even the parents don't know about. Or maybe there's some kind of personality quirk that only manifests itself when they get around girls, and this is what destroys the possibility of any such relationship. And we, we tend to push our children into marriage. The first consideration that we have toward our children is we've got to find you the right person to marry. And we force the issue, and very frequently, marriages turn out to be disastrous because they are the result of prodding and pushing from parents rather than the design and the will of God. What we're going to see this morning and probably next week, because I doubt whether we'll get through all of this, is that if a father was really wise, and we'll implicate a mother in that, Rather than beginning to look for a partner for his child, he would start, first of all, considering that the best thing for that child might be that that child remain single. That that would be the starting ground, and marriage would be the second choice. Now, maybe that's a little different than you thought, but this whole passage will support that. Now, the Bible does teach about being single. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we have already seen three basic principles about being single. Number one, being single is good. Verse 1 of chapter 7 says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And we saw that the phrase to touch a woman means to have a sexual relationship. It is good for a man to be celibate. It is good for a person not to marry. First of all, then, to be single is good. Secondly, to be single is a gift. God gifts certain people with the charismata of singleness. Verse 7, every man has his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. It's good if you have the gift to remain single. Thirdly, we've learned that your marital status has no relationship to salvation. When you become a Christian, it is not incumbent upon you immediately to get married, nor is it incumbent upon you immediately to get single and dump your wife or your husband in order that you might have greater devotion to God. And this is precisely the conflict in Corinth. The Jews were saying you must get married. The Gentiles were saying you must be celibate or ascetic. And uh, the Apostle Paul says, no, verse 20, let every man abide in the same calling in which he was called. Whatever situation you were in, verse 24 says, when you were saved, 
stay there. If you're single, that's good. If you're married, that's good. All right, then we've learned that singleness is good. Singleness is a gift. And if you don't have the gift, don't try to be single. You'll only frustrate yourself. Thirdly, singleness is not necessarily related to salvation. You don't have to get married immediately upon being saved. And you don't have to get unmarried immediately upon being saved. You can be equally surrendered whether you're single or married. Now, in verses 25 to 40, Paul expands on this basic presentation. The Corinthians were asking questions. According to verse 1 of chapter 7, concerning the things about which you wrote, Paul is replying to direct questions they were asking. And the question he's answering here is, should they get married? Is it better to be single to serve God with a devoted heart and a single mind? Or is it necessary to get married like the Jewish traditionalists were saying in order to fulfill the will of God? The Jews said you had to be married or you would violate God's command to replenish the earth. And the Gentiles coming out of a philosophical asceticism would say it's better to be single and you can devote yourself totally to God. Paul is saying both are good. Some have the gift of singleness and if they do, that's good. Some do not have the gift of singleness, and it's better for them to marry, and that's good as well. Notice, being single and being married has no relation to spirituality. Single people are not more spiritual, neither are married ones. But now, in order to kind of prod those people who have the gift of singleness to use that gift and not to get married, he adds verses 25 to 40. And this is an encouragement to single people to see whether or not God has not given them a gift that they are to maintain and stay single. Now, notice verse 25, and we'll start at that point. Now, concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that has obtained mercy of the Lord to be trustworthy. Now, concerning Parthenoi, the word virgins, to whom does this refer? Well, there have been all different opinions offered by uh, strange and weird groups, but there isn't really any difficulty in interpreting the word. The word simply means virgin. Parthenoi simply means virgin, someone who is unmarried. Now, since it is used with the feminine article, it is referring to unmarried girls. Virgin girls is the objective in the statement now concerning virgins. That's precisely who he has in mind. I might add that once in Revelation 14.4, uh, the word is used to refer to bachelors. But here with the feminine article, he has in mind single girls. Concerning single girls, he says, that is, unmarried women, unmarried virgin daughters, I have no commandment of the Lord. Now, when the Lord settled a question with a direct statement, Paul said so. For example, in verse 10, he says, The Lord said, Let not the wife depart from her husband. And he's quoting Jesus. He says here now, regarding unmarried girls, regarding single daughters, I have no command of Jesus. He didn't say anything, and he means by that, I can't quote any recorded words of Christ. Jesus didn't say anything about this. When the Lord stated a command, he said it. When the Lord gave no command, Paul also said that. In verse 12, he said, to the rest speak I, not the Lord. In other words, here's something now that I'm going to speak. It's not less authoritative. It's just that the Lord didn't say anything about it. So he can't quote Christ. So he says, now the Lord had nothing to say about this, but I give my judgment. Notice it in verse 25. And not just as an ordinary man, but as one that has obtained mercy of the Lord to be trustworthy or to be believable. 
I am giving my judgment. Now, does that mean that this is Paul's opinion? Not really. Not at all. You see, there are issues which the Lord spoke about, and there are issues which the Lord did not speak about. Now, notice this. Of the ones that the Lord did not speak about, the apostles often spoke. Now, sometimes when the apostles spoke, they gave absolute authoritative dictums. But sometimes they only gave guidelines because there could be no absolutes. Now, in this section, he is saying, look, I am giving you a guideline. I am giving you good advice. Incidentally, it is not just Paul's advice. It is the advice of the Holy Spirit through him. But there cannot be an absolute. He cannot say, all of you must be single, or all of you must be married, because for some there is marriage and for some there is singleness. And so he says, let me give you some advice as to the general principles to apply in each case. I'm giving you my judgment on this. I'm giving you general guidelines, and they are not independent of the Holy Spirit. In verse 40, he says, and I consider, not I think so in the terms of our use in English, but I consider that I also have the Spirit of God, and it's sarcastic because those people who were confusing them were saying, well, we have the mind of the Spirit, and Paul is simply saying, I, I consider that I have the mind of the Spirit too. So the Spirit of God was behind it. This is Paul's counsel, general principles to govern the whole attitude of believers towards singleness. Now, concerning virgin daughters, there is no direct quote of the Lord that I can give. But I want to give you my opinion or my judgment, my assessment, not just as an average man, but as one that has obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. It isn't just the counsel of a wise man, but one who had obtained mercy of the Lord. What does that mean? One who was worthy of confidence. One who, by special mercy of God, had been given an unusual insight into truth. I'm speaking to you as one who is pistos. That's the word translated here, faithful. It means believable, trustworthy. That is a frequent use of that word in the New Testament. Worthy of confidence. You can trust my judgment. God has given me, by His mercy, unusual insights into truth that you can trust. Paul felt himself indebted to the mercy of Christ for those inward truths that he had. Christ, by His grace, had made him a believable preacher, had made him an authoritative apostle. And so he's saying, you Corinthians can accept my wisdom here. You can accept these principles. You can take them with confidence because Christ has given me unusual mercy. He has been unusually merciful to me in those inward graces which allow me to speak the truth. Now, let me summarize what he means by verse 25. In regard to single daughters, I have no absolute command for every case. Every case is different. But through God's grace, he has put me in a position to give you good advice. And that advice is believable. And you can take that advice and apply it to every situation. Now, let's look at verse 26. I suppose, therefore, that this is good. Stop there. And then go to the end of the verse. I say that it is good for a man so to be. 
I suppose, therefore, that this is good. Now, please, the word suppose is misleading again. The word suppose isn't Paul saying, well, let's see, I, I suppose. No. Nomizo in the Greek means I hold or I consider. It is not a guess, but a conviction. I hold the conviction that this is good. What is good? That it is good for a man so to be. So to be what? A virgin, unmarried. And here he adds the concept of a man to the feminine form in verse 25. It is good to be unmarried. It is good to be single, he's saying. It is good to be an unmarried virgin. And we've seen that idea already in 7.1 and in 7.8. Twice there he says it's good to be single. To be single isn't wrong if you have the gift. And that's why it's ludicrous for the church to make misjudgments on single people. And I think especially in our day-to-day -day when there is a, a, just a plethora of uh, information coming out about the family, the family is fine and we must concentrate on the family. And there's, there's a proper emphasis there, obviously. It's a high, high emphasis that has to be made. But at the same time, there must be the balance and consideration of what it is to be single and still have identity and acceptance on an equal basis in spiritual life as anybody who's married and not to be particularly thought abnormal. If you have the gift, it is a good thing. Don't seek to marry. It is a good thing to remain single. Now, that's Paul's advice, and it comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul then supports that idea with five reasons for remaining single. We'll just go as far as we can this morning, and we'll see where we get. Reason number one for staying single, and some of you who are married may identify with these and look back and say, I knew that I should have stayed single. Um, others of you who are very concerned about the social pressure to get married may realize that that social pressure is just that, social pressure and not the will of God. And you'll reconsider that pursuit in your life. For whatever purposes God has, we'll pray that He'll make application to your life. All right, number one reason to stay single is the pressure of the system. The pressure of the system. Notice verse 26. I suppose, therefore, that this is good. What is good? That it is good for a man so to be. To be what? To be unmarried. Why? Because of the present distress. Do you see it in the middle of verse 26? Because of the present distress. On account of the immediate necessity might be a more literal translation. On account of the immediate necessity, because of the present distress. Now, the word ananke here has a secondary meaning, which I think is very helpful in explaining the passage, and that is that it means violence. And the Apostle Paul is saying, incidentally, it is used to speak of violence, and it is translated best that way in Luke 21, 23. They're talking of the violence of the Great Tribulation. It refers to violence in 1 Thessalonians 3, 7, 2 Corinthians 6, 4, and 2 Corinthians 12, 10. The same word refers to violence and is best translated violence. Well, here, I think that that is also the best translation. It is better to be single because of the immediate violence. And what do you mean by this? Well, Kittle says that this denotes the tensions that exist between the new creation in Christ and the old cosmos. Tracing the use of this word through the New Testament, Kittle comes up with the idea that when a person becomes a Christian, he immediately gets into a violent conflict with the system. 
Now, Paul is speaking of the violence and the distress and the pain and the suffering that can come to anyone who confesses Christ. It is difficult to be a Christian, Paul is saying, and it is especially difficult to be a married Christian because of the distress and the violence of the system. Now, Paul had had many experiences that would help us to understand this. Paul would go into a town and they would beat him. He would go into another town and they would stone him. He would go into another town and they would give him stripes with a whip. He would go into another town and they would put him in jail. On and on and on through the man's life, there was pain and suffering, pain and suffering. Now, can you imagine the intensity with which that problem would be magnified if the Apostle Paul had had a dear wife at home and a group of little apostles running around the house? Well, that would have been much more complicated. And everything that Paul endured, he would have had in the back of his mind. But if it happens to me, then who takes care of my wife? And who takes care of my children? And how can I keep doing this while my wife sits home in fear and the constant edge of heartbreak and my children in fear that their father will never return? I must be home taking care of them, nurturing them, raising them. That's my primary obligation. Do you see, in the violence of the world in which Paul lived, marriage was a terrible encumbrance to somebody who was a Christian. At least in the sense of the ministry that he had. The Corinthian Christian could well remember what the Corinthian Jews had tried to do to Paul the very time he came to their city. Now, Paul is saying because of the, notice this, the present or the immediate violence, Paul is anticipating something here. There is a violence that is going to come when the wholesale pagan persecution breaks out, and Paul could see it coming. He knew that a girl married, a guy married, and raising children might suffer the heartbreaking losses that can only come to those who have a family when the persecution broke out. He knew from his own life, as I said, that it was good that no wife and no children needed to weep and live with broken, fearful hearts every time he went somewhere. Hard times were coming to the church, and Paul was aware of it. The change in the pagan attitude toward Christians was in the wind. You say, well, how did he know? Well, in the first place, Jesus had predicted it. In John chapter 15, Jesus said as much, when he promised the disciples that they were going to suffer persecution. If the world hate you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, the world hates you. Pretty clear. Down in 16, verse 1, he says, Don't be surprised when you're offended. They'll put you out of the synagogues. The time comes that whosoever kills you will think he does God's service. Jesus predicted it would come. Paul could see it on the horizon. For example, let me just give you a little history. The first fearful persecution broke out under Nero. Historians tell us that the barbarities inflicted on the Christians during that first persecution were such as excited the sympathy of even the Romans themselves. Nero refined cruelty upon cruelty and continued all manner and style of persecution. He had some Christians sewn up in the skins of wild beasts and then turned over to dogs to be torn into pieces. Others he dressed in uh, garments that were made stiff with wax 
He fixed those people to trees and then lit them like candles to light his garden. This occurred throughout the early centuries of the Roman Empire. Erastus, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, was one of those martyred in the first persecution, and Erastus was the chamberlain or the treasurer of the city of Corinth. That What that tells us is that the persecution of Nero extended to Corinth and took the life of one of the men named in the Bible, one of the Christians of Corinth. Now, Paul knew that this was coming to Corinthians. He could see it on the horizon. And in view of this, he says, my advice is if you have the gift, stay single. And people keep in mind that all of this advice is only to those who have the gift. Because to force somebody to be single who doesn't have the gift is to force them to burn with desire all their life, and that isn't accomplishing anything. But if you have the gift, he is saying, that's the basic supposition of all of this. Don't get married because of the pressure that is coming, the pressure of the system against the believer. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Seek not to be bound. In other words, I'm not saying get unmarried. I don't want any misunderstanding there. Don't divorce your wife. In fact, in verse 10, he says, let not the wife depart from her husband. Whatever the distress was, the married must endure it. But if you have a choice and you have the gift, don't seek marriage. Stay the way you are, verse 27 is saying. Now, the question that comes to mind here is, how does this translate into 1976? Keep in mind that Paul is talking about those who have the gift. We have people today who have the gift of singleness. What does it mean to them to know the present distress, the pressure of the system? Are we facing in our world a time of distress? Are we facing in our world a time of violence like they did then? Are we facing a time of persecution? Some say we are. According to our Lord Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 in his teaching on the Mount of Olives regarding the end time, he said the end of the age would be characterized by war, cold and hot war, be characterized by famine, disease, earthquake, and persecution. And certainly the worst of that would come to pass in the period known as the Great Tribulation after the church is taken out of the world. But it seems apparent that some of those things are fast becoming a reality before the rapture of the church. Overpopulation, pollution, crime, immorality, false prophets, terrible sin, all kinds of things are, are already on the horizon and are unavoidable in our lifetime. And if Paul was right when he wrote to Timothy that evil men will get worse and worse, then it can only get worse. And he was right. At best, it is an insecure and explosive world. There is an interesting book entitled The Year 2000, written by Herman Kahn and Anthony Weiner. And in it, this is what they predict for the year 2000. It sounds like they've been reading Matthew 24, except they're not Christians. This is what they predict. Invasion and war, civil strife and revolution, famine, disease, persecution by despotism, that is, by dictatorship, national disasters and a depression or economic stagnation, etc. Those are the predictions of... Uh, those people who look at the world analytically. And that's precisely what Matthew 24 says. It's a rough world. And being married only complicates it greatly because of the, of the problem of caring for your wife and husband and caring for your children. 
So Paul says it's a pressure world. All of the end time, from the time Jesus first arrived until his return, all of that time is a pressure system set against the Christian. We are to anticipate suffering through all of that time, the hatred of the world. And so Paul says if you have the gift and you don't burn with desire physically and sexually, if the Spirit of God has given you the gift of singleness, then be content because of the pressure of the system that is here and will yet come in a more fearful display of violence in the future. And I think all of us would agree that for the Christian, the nearer we get to the end, the higher the price to pay for our faith. That has to be true. If evil men do get worse and worse, and if apostasy runs wild, and if the mystery of iniquity is already working and moving toward the evil of the tribulation, then Satan is going to battle all the more stringently and strongly toward the end. And persecution will rise and many will pay high prices. And he's saying, if you're single, just stay that way. You have the gift. You have less encumbrances. The second thing, stay single, number one, because of the pressure of the system set against Christianity. Number two, because of the problems of the flesh. Remain single because of the problems of the flesh. Now, verse 28 identifies this for us. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she has not sinned. He wants to make sure we understand that it isn't a sin to get married. That is not what he's saying. He doesn't want any misunderstanding. He is not against marriage. Marriage is not an evil thing. Marriage is not a sinful thing. It is still the majority state. It is still the design of God. It is still a beautiful thing. It is still a wholesome thing. Don't misunderstand me. If you marry, you don't sin. And if a virgin marries, she doesn't sin. So bachelors and and, uh, maiden daughters can marry without sinning. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, and I would spare you from that. Such would have trouble in the flesh, and I'd spare you from that. This is very interesting. Notice... The statement, such shall have trouble in the flesh. Such is masculine in its gender, and that would gather up all cases, not just virgins, but bachelors as well. Trouble. That's an interesting word. Do you know one of the things that occurs when you get married? Trouble. Trouble occurs in marriage. You say, oh, in our marriage? Yes. In your, in my marriage. Oh, can't believe it. It's true. Trouble occurs. You say, well, where does it come from? Trouble comes from what? The flesh. Do you know what we have realized in our marriage? Both of us are sinners. My wife is a sinner. Now, I'm not getting specific, but I'm just giving you a general truth. My wife is a sinner. You know what's even worse than that? I am a sinner. And you know what happens when you put two sinners together? Trouble happens. And then when you have a whole lot of little sinners come into your house, every one of our children are depraved. Have you recognized that about your children? You know what? We were talking about Melinda yesterday. Melinda is especially depraved. And she is, she's only two. But you know that a first response to any difficult situation is to lie. It just automatically lies. And now I'm in the process of trying to teach her that that isn't the approach. It's just automatic. Well, we have six 
people in our house, all of whom are totally depraved. Now, you know what that spells? Trouble. Trouble in the flesh. Any kind of marriage is going to bring about trouble. Now, flesh, what does flesh mean? Sarks. This is the lower nature. Now, let me give you a simple definition. This is our humanness. This is our humanness. And it is humanness in marriage that makes for trouble. Even though the Holy Spirit wants perfect unity, humanness creates problems. He has in mind the problems that come from our humanness. The ever-present troubles of married life. Now, what about this idea of trouble? This kisses the word philipsis in the Greek, and it means literally pressure. It comes from a Greek word meaning to press together and was used of squashing grapes. Now, you know, marriage is a pressure, isn't it? It's a pressing together. And in that kind of pressing together, humanness is going to rear its head. You know the kind of trouble that humanness brings? Let me tell you some of the things that humanness creates. Anger. You ever have anger in your marriage? In your home? Oh, it comes now and then. Selfishness. You ever have that? How about stupidity? Whatever made you do that? How could anybody overdraw the bank account by that much? <laughs> Just plain stupidity. That's humanness. And the other partner says, boy, you know, I, how do I know what you've done with everything else? Now I can't trust you with that. You know. Forgetfulness. This is the third year you've forgotten my birthday. That creates problems. Dishonesty. You don't tell the whole truth. Secret sin. Pride. Pride makes us build ego walls, and then people can't get to us. Then the communication is cut off. See, thoughtlessness, overindulgence. You know, in a home, people say, well, if I could just get married, that would solve my problems. My friend, if you get married, all that's going to do is magnify your problems so somebody else has to live with them. <laughs> and that's humanness, and that's part of the problem of being married. And that's why the most miserable people in the world are not single. Did you get that? The most miserable people in the world are married. In a marriage, it doesn't work. Paul Salehammer says, and I quote, the only thing worse than waiting is wishing you had. Misery comes basically in marriage at a much higher level than in being single because you're slammed against this other person and everything about you that's wrong keeps getting thrown back in your face. And you're constantly having to adjust. All marriages have difficulty. They're just plain trouble in the flesh. Hardship, sacrifice, because two people are human. And children are human and they add more depravity to the scene and it all becomes complex. If God has given you the gift of singleness, stay that way and avoid the problems of humanness that come in a marriage. Don't look at marriage as the solution to your problems. It is the magnification of them. You know, we always say marriage never changes anything. It just intensifies everything you are and makes somebody else have to live with it. If you're going to solve your problems, you're going to solve them apart from your marriage. I've had people say, you know, I've got this tremendous sexual problems and desires, and it's to the place of sinfulness. If I could only get married, you know what happens when they get married? Nothing changes that. They still have those same lusts and evil desires. Even though there is a sexual fulfillment in marriage, if that thing is a sin problem that hasn't been dealt with, there will be just as much illicit lust in the marriage as there was before you got married. 
And other people say, well, I'm so lonely. If only I could, if, if I could just get married and, and, and have somebody. And you know what? There are plenty of somebodies in the world that you could know and love and not be lonely. And usually a super lonely person will get married and draw walls around themselves and be super lonely even though they're married and they'll make somebody else lonely. Marriage is not the solution to your problems. Marriage is the solution to one thing for the Christian and only one, and that is the need to be obedient to God's will. If God wants you married, then get married to the right person, only if that's clearly God's will. But if you have the gift of singleness, you avoid the special problems of the flesh that come with marriage, as well as the pressure of the system. Third thing, the third reason for remaining single is the passing of the world. The pressure of the system, the problems of the flesh, and the passing of the world. Look at verse 29. I'm going to read 29 to 31 because it all goes together. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. Literally, the time is shortened. The time is shortened. It remains that both they that have wives be as though they had none. They that weep as though they wept not. They that rejoice as though they rejoice not. They that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world as not abusing it for the schema, the state of this world is passing away. Now, what is he saying here? He is saying, hey, marriage is part of the schema of this world. And it is what? Passing away. Marriage has no relation, listen to this, marriage has no relation to permanent eternal interest. I know this bothers a lot of young people because they get married. A couple asked me this recently, brand new newlyweds, and they said, if the Lord comes real soon, will we still be married in heaven? I said, no. That was very disappointing. They did not like that thought. And, of course, there are others who have been married a long time who are waiting for the rapture because <laughs> they'll cease to be married. <laughs> But marriage, there is no marriage in heaven. None at all. I, I know the Mormons have a very sophisticated, complex deal about eternal marriages. It's just so much hogwash. There are no marriages in heaven. Marriage is a part of this passing scheme. That's what he's saying. It is like human emotion. It is like human possessions. It is like human pleasures. It's all part of this system and gone. The time is shortened, kairos, the appointed time. Kairos means the set time, the appointed time. God has set out an appointed time. It is shortened. It is rolled up. The allotted time in this world is brief. James said your life is a vapor, right? It appears for a little time and vanishes away. And who is able to say what about tomorrow? Why, who knows what tomorrow is going to bring? What is your life? Brief, a brief flickering candle that is gone with the first breath of God's divine wind. James 1.10 says, The rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away, for the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass, its flower falls. The grace of the fashion of it perishes, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Life is short even for the rich. In 1 Peter 1.24, All flesh is like grass, the glory of man like the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls away. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the world passes away. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. You see, marriage is a part of a passing system. If you have a gift for singleness, then that's part of the passing system you don't need. 
It is God's design, people, and this is what it's saying here. It is God's design that we attach lightly to earthly things. That those who are married even be as though they were not married. In other words, it doesn't mean you mistreat your wife or you don't fulfill your obligation. No, no, the Bible's clear about that. But it is that you remember that it is the reality that is eternal that matters. Colossians 3.2 adds a word that I think is important. Love your wives, husbands. But listen to what Colossians 3.2 says. Set your affections on things what? Above and not on things on the earth. You can love your wife and at the same time keep your priorities and your perspectives in the proper way. Now, Paul gives five examples here of the Christian's freedom from the passing world. Marriage, weeping, rejoicing, buying, and worldly pleasure. They're all part of the passing system. Marriage, for example. He says in verse 29, it remains that those who have wives be as though they had none. Don't attach yourself totally to marriage. That's just part of the passing world. Luis Palau was saying that, you know, one of the things that's so difficult today in the world is that people have become so super attached in marriage that you can't get them to do anything in serving the Lord. He said, sometimes on the mission field, we try to get a couple of missionaries to go maybe on a month special mission, and they don't want to go because they don't want to leave their wives, they say. And he says, there's got to be a balance here. There's got to be some kind of balance between love your wife and care for your family on the one hand, and we've really pushed that to the limits, and on the other hand, recognizing that marriage is to be treated lightly as an earthly thing. And that what we do for eternal values is what's really consequential. Listen, marriage is going to give away to heavenly family life with God the Father, Christ the husband, and all believers the wife, right? Oh, you say, well, what does he mean by weeping? And they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. What he's saying is don't get attached to human emotion either. Don't rise and fall with what's going on in your world. Don't be overburdened by what happens. You know, there are some people, for example, somebody in their family dies and they crack up. They fall apart. They're worthless. That's ridiculous for a Christian. Why? Because that's just a temporal thing. You're going to spend all eternity with them anyway. How ridiculous it is for so often when a wife loses a husband, she just folds up her tent and steals away into the night. That's the end of her. Or a man loses his wife and it's all over with. He can't adjust himself. Why? Because he has not treated marriage lightly and he can't control the weeping that comes. Don't get overdone with human emotion. Listen, when we get to heaven, God's going to wipe away all tears. What about rejoicing? Well, what he means there is don't get too happy with the system either. Don't get overjoyed with what makes the world happy. Do not be a victim of the world's emotion. That's what he's saying. Don't get overtied to the world's relationships and don't get overtied to the world's emotions. You're another worldly creature. Now, what about the fourth one? Buying, at the end of verse 30, they that buy as though they possess not. Don't get overoccupied with the world's commodities. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. First John 2.15 says, and he's simply saying, look, you're in the world and you're going to be a part of it, but tie loosely to its relationships, loosely to its emotions, and loosely to its commodities. Listen to me, people. That third one is a tough one, isn't it? I'm telling you, some of us have got almost every single thing in this world that we have financially, and almost all of our mental preoccupation tied into the world's commodities. We're more worried about our bank account than we are our spiritual life. We're more worried about how we decorate our houses and how fancy our cars are than we are about spiritual realities and eternal truths. 
And we are not attached lightly to the world. We are attached heavily to the system. And so when the system begins to crack and we begin to lose things, we can't handle it. Set your affections on things above. Marriage is a passing thing. Human emotion is a passing thing. Human commodities are passing things. Lastly, he talks about human pleasure. And that's using the world in verse 31. That is, is describing human pleasure, worldly pleasure. Worldly pleasure, you, some of us live for worldly pleasure. Live to have a good time. Live to do this and to do that and to travel here and to go here. And we're so busy enjoying everything in this world that we can't be much used to God. We talk so much about leisure. And, you know, we all need a rest once in a while. We talk about retirement. We talk about we've got to, we've got to get away and we want to see things and do things and enjoy our life is so short. Listen, people, I wonder whether the Apostle Paul really looked at life like that. But life is not ever to be for the Christian a constant vacation. It's not just to be worldly pleasure. We are to spend ourselves on those things that are going to have eternal consequences. I'd rather die at 40 and have used my life for God than live till 80 having done nothing. I think it matters that we invest ourselves in God's kingdom. And he's saying, attach lightly to the preoccupation of the world. Well, it's very difficult to divorce ourselves. You know, we're getting sold a bill of goods about go here and see this and see that and buy this uh, vehicle so you can travel here and go here and do this and look at this wonderful new pleasure and this will make your life more comfortable. And we get really wrapped up in that whole preoccupation with pleasure. Paul is emphasizing the passing things of life, one of which is marriage. And he says the fashion or the schema, the external present state of things is in the process of passing away. Now, notice what his conclusion is. Verse 31, don't abuse it. What does he mean? Don't overdo your identification with the world. Use the world, but don't use it to excess. Be married and, and enjoy your marriage and love your wife and give yourself to one another and do all you can to make that marriage everything. But don't let it get out of perspective so that all of a sudden it becomes everything and you're not any use to God. And it's fine to be sympathetic. Paul says, weep with those that weep in Romans 12, 15. And he says, rejoice with those that rejoice. Rejoice always, he says in Philippians. And it's fine to have all of these things, but don't ever let them get beyond don't overdo it. That's what he means. Abuse it. Because a new schema is coming. A new world. Don't overvalue human relations. Don't overvalue emotion, possession, pleasure above its true worth. Listen to me. Marriage can be a distraction from spiritual reality. Sorrow can be a distraction from spiritual reality. I've known some people so sorrowing, so sad, that they can't even enjoy the the experience of the Holy Spirit. So can joy. So can possession. So can pleasure. Listen, the sons and daughters of the king should deal with marriage under the limitations of their relation to the king, whatever he wills. You should never pursue marriage outside the government of God, and you should never abuse it so that it becomes the preoccupation. Concentrate on the eternal. Now, what's Paul saying? This is easier to do when you're single. It's easier when you're single. Why? Because you have not that potential sorrow of the death of somebody that you love in your family. You have not that preoccupation with marital life and family life. You have not that preoccupation with purchasing goods that everybody in your family wants. 
You know, one of the ways that Satan tempts me to materialism is through everybody in my family. Uh, Dad, I want this. Daddy, can I have this? Honey, why can't we get that? And then I say it sometimes. I say, hey, I think we ought to get this. And everybody's coming at it from all the commodities angle. And it gets to, you know, my son wants a pair of shoes the other day. I mean, he didn't want any pair of shoes. He wanted a pair of shoes like he wanted. But I couldn't find them. After I'd spent about three hours looking for a pair of shoes, I said, this is infringing on the, on the time for the work of the kingdom. He says, huh? I said, what's with the pair of shoes? Who needs it, right? Just get something on your feet. We don't care. No, Dad, i got to have a pair of shoes. Praise the Lord, I found them, and I found them for eleven ninety nine. But it's very hard when you're married to not be encumbered by the kind of things that are temporal. Spend so much of your time in that. Listen, if you have the gift of singleness, use it. Praise God for it. It's exciting. Well, if you have that gift, stay single because of the pressure of the system. It's a violent world. It isn't easy to raise children in this world. It isn't easy to have, have a family to care for in this world. It's going to get worse. Because of the problems of the flesh, marriage is trouble. And it's trouble you don't need if God has gifted you to be single. And the world is passing anyway. And marriage is simply a temporal passing relationship. And if God hasn't necessarily called you to it, there's no need for you to be married. You can just sidestep that one temporal thing and have that much more devotion for the Lord. Those are practical, aren't they? I'm not done, but I'll have to wait till next week. Let's pray. Father, we know that you've given us in our congregation many with the, the gift of singleness. And yet we know, Lord, that it isn't really singleness because they're complete with you. They're really fulfilled. And maybe much more so than some married people who are married and because of all the anxiety of that marriage, unable to really experience the fulfillment that you intend for them. I thank you for single people who have been able to give themselves wholly to you throughout the years of the, of the kingdom on earth in the form that it's been. Faithful missionaries, teachers, workers, even in our own congregation who have that unusual gift to remain single, devoted to you in a special way. Help us as parents, Lord, to look first maybe for that area in the lives of our children and see if they have that gift, if that's not the way that they should go and challenge them and encourage them to use it, fulfill the potential that is there. Lord, I want to say thank you this morning, too, for one other thing, and that is for the privilege of studying a scripture that hits us at every aspect of life and leaves us with instruction to cover every area. Thank you, Father, for knowing where the problems would come, anticipating them, giving us your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to Use website at gty.org. 
John MacArthur and Grace T.U. reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Information from information. This is Ken Ham, and we've created the video streaming platform of Answers TV. Where does information come from? Well, imagine you're walking along the beach and find a small stone washed up on the shore. It's covered with strange symbols. You'd have no idea what the symbols mean, but you'd know it came from the mind of a person. Why? Because we know that language or information ultimately only comes from a mind. It doesn't just arise by itself. In each of your cells is a highly complex, extremely compact language system. Your DNA has all the instructions to build you, and it has a system that reads the information. This didn't come about by chance. The information came from the Creator God. Discover resources to help the whole family grow in God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Be equipped and encouraged when you go to AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes. Winds up in a pocket Hop on the wagon, try the everything All the while we're missing all the joy that God can bring You can take the new stuff, you can keep the fluff The Bible is our tool and we're here to kick it old school Here we go, you know we're going retro We're cool as a rule, yeah we kick it old Like a moldy piece of bread We act as if the holy word of God is all but dead All we need to know is right there on the pages Why are we obsessed with who the guy on stage is? Dance the hottest dance, get the latest buzzy You're gonna find out Jesus wasn't very fuzzy, was he? You can take the new stuff, you can keep the flow The Bible is our tool and we're here to kick it all
DNA, evidence of ape ancestry? This is Ken Ham with a passion for sharing the truths of God's word with the world. According to evolutionary ideas, our closest living relatives are chimps and that supposedly we share 98% of their DNA. But are we really only 2% different? While the 98% number is based off old data, the data used human DNA as a framework because the researchers assumed common ancestry. It was shown later that much of the data was contaminated with actual human DNA from the researchers. And later research showed our DNA to be only 85% similar. This similarity in DNA doesn't suggest a common ancestor, but a common designer. There's so much more to learn about where humans came from when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll discover that the history in God's Word is true at AnswersRadio.com. Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make all things? For His glory. How can you glorify God? By loving Him and doing what He commands. Where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible. What's the Bible? God's Word. God's Word. God's Word. DNA, filled with evolutionary junk? This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Is our DNA filled with leftover junk, evidence of our evolutionary past? Well, for decades, many scientists would have said, yes, 98% of DNA is junk. This was so strongly believed that many scientists didn't even want to bother researching the so-called junk regions. But recently, a team of researchers concluded the days of junk DNA are over and the old view has fundamentally changed. Well, there goes that supposed evidence for evolution. From a biblical worldview, we don't expect most of our DNA to be useless junk, and it isn't. DNA, it reflects God's incredible design. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again and many others at AnswersRadio.com. Is there more than one God? No, there is only one God. And how many persons does this one God exist? Three persons. Who are the three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where is God? God is everywhere. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but He always sees me. Who were our first parents? Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned against God. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Why did God send Jesus into the world? To save his people from their sins. What did Jesus do to save his people from their sins? He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. Three women, the mothers of us all? 
This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Ministry of Answers in Genesis and Creation Museum. In your cells is a special kind of DNA called mitochondrial DNA. Now, unlike regular or nuclear DNA, this DNA only comes from mom. Like nuclear DNA, this DNA mutates. Now, if evolution's true, there should be major differences between people in hundreds of mutations, but we don't find that. It gets even more interesting. Scientists can trace anyone's mitochondrial DNA back to one of three major genetic groupings. Three women being the mothers of us all might sound familiar to those who know their Bibles. Noah's three daughters-in-law are the great-great-great-great-grandmothers of us all. Find exciting evidence that confirms the truth of God's Word from the very first verse when you go to AnswersRadio.com and subscribe for free daily insights at AnswersRadio.com. did Jesus do after he rose from the grave? He ascended into heaven. Where is Jesus now? He is seated at his Father's right hand. And what's Jesus going to do at the end of the age? He's going to come back and judge the world. What must a person do to be saved? Believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And how is a person saved? By God's grace alone. And what is grace? God's kindness to the undeserving. Natural selection. Evolution in action. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's word. Examples of natural selection are often presented as evolution in action. But natural selection doesn't have the power to generate anything new. It can only act upon existing characteristics so that some members of a species are more likely to survive. But evolution requires the addition of brand new genetic information for new characteristics. And that's never been observed. So natural selection doesn't help evolutionists at all. But it does demonstrate God's wisdom. He created each kind with a tremendous amount of genetic variability so kinds can adapt. Natural selection, it's not evolution. God's word is true and science confirms it. Get answers when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
came tumbling down. Johnny Erickson Tata, and I'm sure at one time or another you have asked yourself, isn't life supposed to be more than this? I mean, shouldn't it be more satisfying, more fulfilling? Listen, even the best of Christians feel this way, and it's because that we are so much more than just our bodies. Sure, our hands and feet and eyes and ears equip us for physical experiences, but at the same time, You and I are also spirit. God has set eternity in our hearts, and that's why we feel so restless, so itchy, so dissatisfied here on earth. We squirm and groan, itching and yearning and longing for something that this world, with all of its physicalness, can never give. The thing about our bodies and our spirits makes for an incredible tension. And so if you are feeling that tension today, if the weariness of your earthly life is weighing you down if your heart is saying man there must be something more release the tension with Colossians chapter 3 fix your eyes on heavenly glories above for you are assured be patient, stay calm you're assured God guarantees that the longing one day are going to be satisfied and friends (laughs) heaven's going to happen sooner than you think Being transgender.
transgender is about the bravest thing you can do. It's not correct that there is such a thing as biological sex. Do you believe that there, uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think so. <laughs> but pregnant. you are denying that trans people look at A transgender woman losing her cool when she says an employee at an Albuquerque video game store called her sir instead of ma'am. I'll call him Caitlyn Jenner. No, it's her. Not. You're not being polite to the pronoun. Because disrespect. Okay, you cut that out now or you'll go home in an ambulance. Like waves that crash against the shore. Cue the B-roll, please. Feminism has been relentlessly slamming against the shores of traditional values for over a century. First wave of feminism. Right around the turn of the century, what did they want? The right to vote. By the late 20th century, however, second wave feminism led by Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, and others wanted to separate the procreative act from the procreative consequence. In other words, they wanted sexual liberation, baby. Modern third wave feminism wants to separate their gender. Matt Walsh exposed this, of course, in what is a woman. But in my humble opinion, Matt never really went about the business of defining what a woman is. What is a woman? What is a woman? Marry one and find out. Mm-hmm. Well, you wouldn't think it would be necessary to define what a woman is any more than you should have to debate over what a pair of eyeglasses are. It does force us to study the subject of femininity culture thinks there's only two theories of femininity the traditional and the modern model you know the old dumb people and now the super smart people and you and i might be inclined to reflexively side with the traditional model of femininity because hey june cleaver that's a lot better than a dude who wears a girl's swimming suit and beats women swimming races but let's, I get that, but let's take a closer look at the competing positions and see if maybe, just maybe, we Christians should be touting a third model of femininity. This is John Fabarez Fabarez from our TV series and youth group study, Road Trip to Truth. The cultural debate on what defines a woman can be roughly split into two models, the traditional and the modern. The traditional model of femininity is strong on physical and emotional definitions, but performatively, women are restricted to societal roles of wife and mother. In other words, it's low on freedom. The modern model of femininity says women are completely free to choose their own roles in society, but physically, anyone can be a woman including men. In other words, it offers too much freedom while being low on meaningful definition. So, with severe deficiencies in each model, where do we look? Is there some other model that can give women a sound standard to live by? Well, hold your skepticism, because we're going to consider the Bible. The biblical model of femininity can be broken into three categories, the physical, the emotional, and the performative. Category one, the physical. According to the Bible, there are only two genders, male and female. Humans are what's called sexually dimorphic. That is, men and women exhibit physical differences beyond those of their reproductive system. Women have softer features, slanted femurs, which give them wider hips, 
and are generally of a smaller frame with less muscle mass. These characteristics suit women for hospitality, crafting with their hands, and rearing children. But despite their physical differences and their perceived usefulness, the Bible is clear. Men and women are of equal value, equally reflecting the glory of their perfect and holy creator. And this value stays constant no matter what culture says. Any teaching, whether traditional or modern, that declares men are more important or valuable than women is in direct violation of this first principle and is thoroughly unbiblical. Category number two, the emotional. The Bible shows women as nurturing, empathetic supporters who bring a strong connectedness to their relationships. It's not that women are more emotional than men, as both share the same emotions in different measures, but women tend to be more emotive or expressive with their emotions. Category three, the performative. Flowing out of God's design for women as the gentler, hospitable, more empathetic members of the human race, women are called to fulfill the role of submissive supporter. While at face value, submission may sound like second-class citizenship for women, it operates more like a dance where one person leads and the other follows. Neither are more valuable than the other, but if each disregards their respective roles, you don't have a dance. You have chaos. Yes, it's true that God is described with male pronouns and is called our father, but God is not a man. He's male in his essence, yes, but it still requires two genders to glorify God to the mass. In this way, women are a rich complement to their male counterparts, bringing glory to a God that exemplifies leading and submission. And if you still are not persuaded that it's a noble thing to be a helper to others, God describes himself as a helper, the perfect most powerful creator of all life calls himself helper. And what's good enough for God is good enough for the women that he's created. The biblical and the traditional model of femininity, they do share more similarities than the modern model, but we should actually reject both the traditional and modern model and proclaim the biblical model of femininity, which actually answers the question, what is a woman? What makes a woman feminine? One, she has unique DNA. Two, she has unique reproductive organs. Three, she's more nurturing than men. Four, she's more emotionally expressive than men. Five, she possesses less muscle mass, wider hips, and isn't as fast as males. Number six, she possesses a whole lot of skills that can be utilized in the marketplace. Seven, she glorifies God in a unique way because of her ability to nurture, love, serve, submit exactly the way that God does. The biblical model differs from both traditional and modern views. Those models, they're just plain deficient. The biblical model is not, but of course it isn't. Wouldn't you expect? to be perfect because after all it is you know biblical rather than masking an emotional struggle the bible tackles the sin issue head on i truly did not think my life would change the way it did 
Here are two reasons why you should consider MediShare affordable biblical health sharing. The average family saves $500 per month, double the customer satisfaction rate compared to health insurance, free telehealth. $4 billion worth of bills have been shared amongst 400,000 members. Okay, that's like four or five reasons to consider MediShare. At MediShare.com slash wretched or call for a quote in two minutes, 844 Since deconstructing and really deconverting, you know, I didn't just deconstruct, I deconverted. I'm not a Christian anymore. Today, we want to talk about the hot topic in the Christian space right now, which is deconstruction. I was really just trying to be honest about the fact that all the ways that I had defined faith and Christianity, that I was no longer choosing to live according to those. I didn't know about that until I learned, until I went through a process of deconstruction. I'm like, wait, you're telling me there's stuff in the Bible that wasn't originally in the Bible? Well, aren't we a trendy lot? We evangelicals, we love fads, and the current trend in evangelicalism is deconstructionism. People claiming, I've deconstructed my faith. Why is this trend so hot? The Bible answers the question, of course, doesn't mince words. Those who are deconstructing never had a constructed faith in the first place. First of all, I understand why people do this, because this is what I did for many years when I had friends who said, you know, I don't really believe that anymore. And I would be like, well, you must have never believed it. You must have never really had a real relationship with Jesus, because according to my particular theology at the time, which was eternal security, which is once you're God's child, you're always God's child, and you can't get away. Once you have faith, you might fall away for a little bit, but you're always going to come back, and you're going to be – you're sealed, you're delivered, you're going to be saved. And that's a difficult thing for me now because i got to be honest. It kind of feels very dismissive, right? Um, and I don't think it really accounts for what actually the reality was and is. Despite the loud protestations of the former professor who has deconstructed, if somebody who once affirmed Christ now denies him, then they were not a possessor of saving faith. If they went out from us, they were never among us. So let's actually answer the question. Why the evangelical church just can't seem to stop producing false converts? From my short track slash booklet, Are You a Rotten Fish? These are five reasons the deconstruction movement charge your phone 40% faster. Tidal wave five. You're going to notice a theme. We've neglected crucial aspects of the gospel, God's character and nature. He's holy and angry with the wicked every day. Uh, I think there are few things more dangerous than preachers out there preaching that God loves everybody unconditionally because the message that is heard by the people who hear that is there are no conditions. I can continue to live just as I'm living in full rebellion against God, and I have nothing to worry about because there aren't any conditions that I have to meet. God loves me unconditionally. I don't have to repent. I don't have to come to Jesus. 
I don't have to leave my life of sin. Uh, no conditions, no strings attached. God loves me just the way I am. He's glad that I turned out so nicely. And we shy away from God's attributes of justice and wrath because we want to be nice, then sin isn't exceedingly simple. Jesus' death means virtually nothing, and the individual never humbles themselves in repentance and faith. If God isn't holy and angry, hell makes no sense. And frankly, Jesus' redemptive work makes no sense. No wonder we've created so many deconstructionists. Number four, while Jesus is indeed meek and gentle, too many Protestant preachers present, that was some alliteration, too many Protestant preachers present Jesus like a sissified boyfriend who just doles out some helpful advice. But I, I despise the picture that's painted in our culture of this sissified, needy Jesus. Amen? And, and that's who he is. He's a sissified, needy Jesus. He's just yearning for you. He's longing for you. He wants friendship and relationship with you. He needs you. Oh, you're breaking his heart. No, he's going to break you. As soon as life goes south, the hearer of this type of Jesus jettisons their boyfriend for a more faithful partner. Number three, we preach a gospel that tells people, your life, it's going to become better if you just follow Jesus. God wants you to be rich. God does not want you to be broke. Why do you keep imagining getting rich one day? Why do you keep imagining that? Because God is talking to you. There you have it, a version of what we know as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, the life enhancement gospel, deceiving millions of people all over the globe, the poor soul is promised prosperity, a better life if they give money or do a bunch of stuff. In other words, these preachers put a yoke squarely on the shoulders of the believer, and as soon as the cosmic vending machine doesn't deliver, they're furious, and who can blame them? They've been working hard for God, and now you let me down, and they deconstruct. We preach that Jesus is the world's cheapest fire insurance. Picture this. You walk into a Sunday school class jam-packed with, give or take, 10-year-olds, and you tell them that without Jesus, they're going to a lake of fire forever, where you're going to suffer constant, conscious, eternal torment. Then you say, so if you'd like to accept Jesus, you won't go to hell. What child isn't going to say, <laughs> I'm in? While Jesus is, if you will, fire insurance, this form of teaching is deficient because a person shouldn't trust Jesus merely to get out of hell free. Now that, that's a part of the motivation, but a person should primarily trust Jesus because he's been so kind to save them from hell. It is kindness of God that should lead somebody to repentance, not mere threatenings. And I know whereof I speak, that was I, and I fear it is millions of others. We have produced myriads of false converts because we fail to preach 
this this is going to be a harsh word for some people. Repentance. Don't we need to repent as well as have faith in order to be saved? Faith alone is really enough. Repentance is not faith. And obviously, if justification is by faith alone, then it's not by faith and repentance. My studies clearly reveal that repentance is not a condition of everlasting life or justification. What, 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 what happened? Why did we jettison a word that is used 30 times in the New Testament that we must turn from our sins, repent from our sins, turning away from the darkness that we used to just love and turn toward the light of righteousness that is now priority one. The one that is granted a saving faith, it's inevitable. They, they, They will, without fail, repent from their sins because that too is a gift from God. And some say, no, turning from your sins is a work. No, it's not. Stopping sinning is not a work. It's just not doing something. Example, you drive the speed limit. Have you ever been pulled over by an officer who said, nice work. Let me give you a reward. You've earned it. No, repentance isn't a work. It is a gift. Failure to command all men everywhere to repent has created scads of false converts. Every minute. Finally, we regularly teach wrong salvation instructions. A simple prayer of accepting Jesus into your life, what we call salvation, is how we become a Christian. If you prayed that simple prayer, we believe you got born again. The first words Mark records in his gospel Jesus commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the good news, repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin, the two wings that must fly us to the Savior. How many times are we commanded to accept Jesus into our hearts in the Bible? There's nothing, nada. If we are telling folks the biblical requirements for salvation, we shouldn't be surprised when they aren't really saved at all, to be certain. There are more issues that people claim to have motivated them to deconstruct. I don't see you doing any of this. What I see you do is pass judgment. I think it's wonderful that you have reminded us just how base and vile that we are. And I believe that. I just found it in a dusty old book in a, in a library. It's called The Bible. <laughs> I initially asked people to share stories of uh, whether they, how they had left evangelicalism specifically in connection with Trump and Trumpism. This religion that we grew up in, it's very racist, it's very sexist, it's very homophobic. Those are not the real reasons that people who claim to be born again commit spiritual suicide and deconstruct. Have you noticed the theme? The core reason people deconstruct centers on a right understanding of the gospel and the gospel response. They've never heard the gospel right, or they were never given the right salvation instructions. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can mangle the gospel and the gospel response, but here's the bottom line. The deconstruction trend is a gospel 
problem. How's about this? We all commit to getting the gospel right. After all, isn't that like the central tenet of Christianity? Would you consider yourself poor in spirit? Do you think it's a good condition to be in? Or does being poor in spirit sound like you're uh, missing or, or lacking something? If you feel that way, then good. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are you, that is, happy and glad are you, if you are lacking spiritually. Like, you know, you can't make it. Because it shows that you realize how much you need Jesus every single morning when you wake up. Look, when I start my day, I go to God in empty-handed spiritual poverty, cavernous, open, empty, and I'm knowing that I lack any strength to face the day. But then God pours out his grace on people like that. So when you get up tomorrow, recognize how poor in spirit you are, and then watch Jesus fill you with himself. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing. And forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise, no surprise, I'm back in your section With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity, his knowledge and strategies Confound the academy, bow to his majesty He paid sin's salary, took up blame on Calvary Those who love his name, spread his fame is the policy All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice That's prize, I'm after Christ and rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth the gospel is not fake news I got to sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been Ain't nothing changed, let us sin, we got the medicine It's still human emergency, the serpent attack You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts Stand up, hands up If you truly love the son of man, trust Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, hands up Does anybody love the son of man? is the king, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Stop and listen to my composition. Lots of rhythm, but not traditional, kind of different. But God's consistent, no contradiction, my proposition. Through crucifixion, he mocked and crippled his opposition. It's not some fiction, I'm spitting, the Son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the Spirit, he brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proposition, it's my suspicion, we dropped the mission. Not to this, but the Word of God, is it not sufficient? The doctrine is that the gospel fiction. Is our shock condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like 
elevator music But we gon' celebrate them, relegate them, we refuse it They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself What I gotta say almost feels too real estate Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate If the father wasn't gracious, no synonym Again. He came straight blameless, no synonym Again. Nothing's been the same since, no synonym Again. Fakers lack his fragrance, no synonym This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus So how we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus Then up, hands up, if you truly love the son of man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the son of man, trust, Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land, what's up, worthy is the land, what's up, worthy is the land. at truthbetoldradio.com that is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M truthbetoldradio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. If you've been listening for a while, you'll notice the voice of Johnny Erickson Tata with the little lessons called Diamonds in the Dust. And this is her testimony. Um, you can find it on Johnny and Friends if you want to see the video of it. J-O-N-I, that's Johnny and Friends. And then that's on YouTube. And this is her story here on Truth Be Told Radio. I grew up in a very athletic family, tennis, horseback riding. My earliest memories of um, hearing about the God of the Bible, though, was around the campfire on the beach of the Delaware shore with my sisters, my mom and dad. 
hearing stories of Noah, David, Moses, Daniel. But God really, really, he, he really wasn't very personal. All that changed, though, when I was a 14-year-old kid, went away on a kind of a church weekend retreat. And I was challenged by the speaker. He said, kids, I want you to measure your lives up against the Ten Commandments. Well, I had never committed adultery, or I don't think I, I stole anything in a big way, but you know what? It, it didn't matter. As I measured my life up against those commandments one by one by one, oh, I, I got this overwhelming sense that I'm missing the mark. I'm not going to make it. Oh, God, help me. It troubled me at first that God gave us a bunch of commandments and he knew very well we couldn't keep. But then it hit me at that weekend retreat. It hit me. That's why Jesus came. He was the one who kept the commandments. He was the one who obeyed the law, even though I didn't and even though I couldn't. I was only 14, but um, I was able to reach out right then and embrace Jesus and say, I, I need you. I, 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 I want to make it out of earth alive, and you're my only passport, so please. Well, I came home from that weekend retreat all fired up, all pumped, all excited. But then um, through high school, um, the enthusiasm of what I had done began to wane, especially when I started confusing the abundant Christian life with the great American dream. My prayers were so self-centered, like, uh, God, help me lose weight. God, I need a new boyfriend. God, give me good grades on this test. Unfortunately, I guess I thought I had done God a great big favor by accepting Jesus as my Savior. And I remember right around my senior year of high school, I prayed, Lord, I'm not, I'm not doing this Christian thing right, and I know it. I don't want to go off to college and defame your good name, smear your reputation. I know it's about far more than just me, so do something in my life to jerk it right side up, because I'm really living this life wrong. Just a few weeks after high school graduation, as I was preparing to head off to college, my sister Kathy invited me to go to the beach for a swim. I swam out to this raft, athlete that I was, I didn't even touch bottom, hoisted myself up onto it and then took this really stupid dive into what ended up being extremely shallow water. I snapped my head back when I hit bottom and it crunched my fourth cervical vertebrae, severing my spinal cord. There I was lying face down in the water, desperately hoping my sister Kathy would please notice that I had not surfaced from my dive. Unbeknownst to me, her back was turned to me. She didn't see me take that dive, but a crab bit her toe. And it so startled her that she quick turned around in the water screaming to me, Johnny, watch out for crabs. And when she did, she saw my blonde hair floating on the surface. I was face down, ready to drown. She came swimming quickly, pulled me up out of the water, and I never, I never was so grateful for fresh air. She saved me, but for what purpose, for what reason? Because now, lying there in a hospital, doctors told me I was going to have to sit down for the rest of my life as a quadriplegic without use of my legs or, or even my hands. My hands don't work. And I remember thinking, God, is this? Is this your idea of an answer to a prayer to be drawn closer to you? If it is, you're never going to be trusted with another one of my prayers again. I mean, I'm a new Christian. How could you have taken me so seriously? I sank into deep depression. 
I remember there were wonderful Christian friends who came to the hospital and they encouraged me. And one Bible verse they shared was from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you, but to help you, plans to prosper you and to give you a hopeful future. God, you, you mean you plan not to harm me? Well, what do you call quadriplegia, huh? What's that all about? As I read that verse and the context around it, I realized something. That when God said that, he was saying it to his children who were being dragged away into captivity by, by the Babylonians. They were going to exile. They were going into slavery. They had decades in front of them of hard, awful suffering. And I began to see that God's plans for a hopeful future for me was not necessarily jumping up, dancing, kicking, doing aerobics, running, walking, getting back use of my arms and my legs. No, God's plans for me go far deeper, a deeper healing, a precious healing of the soul. Because as I was pushed into the arms of God every morning, and that's the truth, even to this day, don't be thinking I'm an expert at quadriplegia, but as it was then in the hospital and as it is today, every morning I wake up saying, Jesus, I can't do this thing called life. Please help me. Please show up. Give me your smile. Give me your strength as I can't make it through the day. And because I go to God with that earnest dependency and, and requirement of his grace every single day, I take that back. No, every single moment I experience the sweetest, most precious, most intimate union with Jesus Christ. So in Jeremiah 29, when God says he won't harm us, doesn't mean the body. doesn't mean our circumstances. He's not going to do anything to harm our soul. Yes, our body may get harmed, but it will somehow serve to enrich our soul. In closing, let me just say that quadriplegia, 46 years of it, that's a long time. I deal with chronic pain. I, um, I had breast cancer a couple years ago, and I remember, I remember as my husband was driving me home in the van from chemotherapy one day, we were talking about how suffering is like little splashovers of hell, kind of like waking us up out of our spiritual slumber. And then we were pulled in the driveway, and he said, well, then what do you think splashovers of heaven are? Are they those easy, breezy, bright times? where everything's going your way, where you have health. And we said, no. Splashovers of heaven are finding Jesus in your splashover of hell. And to find Jesus in your hell is ecstasy beyond compare. And I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking in this world. And this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just a holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know it's time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was 
Radio.com and bye for now.